Hi, my name is Chuck, and I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. Hi. Got to get some stuff out of the way because I start jumping around and bouncing up and down and things, and uh, stuff will start flying. And as you notice, I reinforced my water cup because I'm spastic, and that little plastic cup would be crushed in my hand in a minute. It's uh, 9.42. I don't say that for your benefit. I say that for mine because I think you guys, I don't want you mad at me when it's nine, uh, noon and I'm still talking. So... <laughs> 9.42. Yeah, really, I mean, I don't know how many of you guys have done this kind of thing, but I'll look at my watch and it'll say 9.42, and five minutes later I will have no clue when I started. So it uh, just comes and goes. I want to thank the committee for inviting me out of here. I want to thank Joy for, for calling me up on the phone and, and uh, the emails that we uh, went back and forth and, and Ron and... and um, I want to tell you, Joy's got a cool voice over the telephone. I couldn't get to wait to get here and see what she looked like because I thought, wow, that's, I hope her husband appreciates that. Huh? <laughs> yeah, right. I sound like a steer in distress. Um, uh, Deanna picked us up at the airport. Uh, Beverly, and, Beverly and I have known one another for quite a few years, and and her flight came in at almost the same time as mine, so Deanna was there to pick us up. And, and uh, what I usually do is I'll put the names and the numbers in my cell phone, and then when the, the plane touches down, I just call and let people know that I'm on the ground so then we can know who to look for because, I mean, a lot of you have probably been in Denver Airport. Well, two people have never met before, <laughs> you know, how do you get eye-to-eye -eye contact when, you, when you're just in that, that crowd? So uh, she had called me a couple days ago, and I said, well, I'll just, I'll just put your uh, phone number. It's already in my phone, and, and I'll put your name down. And then, as I do with most things, as soon as I hung up the phone, I forgot her name. <laughs> so there I had her number and no name, and, and the name Terry seemed to stick in my head for some reason. So Deanna became Terry. Um, she was Terry, Colorado. Well, when I was waiting for the train to take me to the main terminal, I called uh, Terry in Colorado, and uh, uh, this guy answered the phone. Hello? And I says, Terry? He says, yeah, you caught me at lunch. And I thought, uh-oh. And I looked down, and I had called Terry in Virginia. <laughs> I said, and I said, I, I met the terminal. I'm waiting, I'm waiting for the train. He says, you're where? Terry in Virginia is next week's guy I have to call. <laughs> so it all worked out, though. It was kind of funny. Um, we went out to eat yesterday and, and uh, on, the way, on the way here, and, and then we went out to Est Estes. Uh, that little Estes, Testes, whatever. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's something like that. I'm from northern Wisconsin, you know. I'm, I don't know all those kind of words like that, eh? So... Uh, we went, we went up, what a beautiful place. Man, oh man, we've been in Colorado several times, Sandy and I, and, and this is my second time here, as a matter of fact, at the Greeley Stampede. And um, uh, we, we love it. We've been in Crested Butte. We've been in uh, some other places as well. But uh, then we went to that, where they filmed that movie, The Shining. I don't know what you call it. It's a big white building that, I don't watch movies. But you know, who, I mean, if you're, you got to know about The Shining because, uh, it's like one of the most famous movies, and we went in there. And as we drove up to the place, I thought, oh, I said, boy, when Sandy finds out about this, she's going to be jealous because she she's watched that movie probably a dozen times. And so has her sister, who is the same age as me. Honest to God, we were walking into the building. The phone rang. It was Sandy. <laughs> and, and so I said, you'll, you'll, um, I'm with Bev and with Deanna, and we just pulled up to this hotel, and she says, you're already going to a hotel with women, and you just got there? <laughs> I said, but guess which hotel? And then I told her it was the one in The Shining. Said, oh, you lucky dog. And within a half hour, her sister her sister calls me. So I got to relay the message to her that I was, uh, and I told her I was with a bunch of women, and that was good. Uh, I, like, I like starting things in the family, you know, keep it going. Um, well, I better get going here. Uh, design for Living, I, I, lo I love your theme, Design for Living. It's really pretty cool, and I've, I've thought about it somewhat, and, and uh, as I said, this, I don't know, I give a real good talk about 3 o'clock in the morning <laughs> in, my, in my bedroom, you know. <laughs> well, I get these profundities that go through my head, and then when I really get up at about 6 o'clock, they're already gone, and I don't know where they go. So 
Um, anyway, I was thinking about this design for living, and I thought, you know, we're, we're, I'm from Superior, Wisconsin, which is at the western tip of Lake Superior. It's about 150 miles south of the Canadian border. It's, uh, um, uh, we, it's very cold there. We, we had 100 hours of below zero temperature just a couple weeks ago. The temperature never got above zero. So, uh, but it's a beautiful, beautiful place. Uh, Duluth across the bay is a larger town. Superior is about 25,000 people, and Duluth is about 80,000. And they are in, in like, almost like a civil war over building schools. Uh, they want to build a bunch of new schools. And they, um, they have this design team. And that's been in the news lately. They're always talking about this design team. And that got me to think about design for living, you know. In my situation, I have a design team. And I didn't realize that at the time, but my higher power has got to be the design team leader. And then there's a sponsor in there who's part of the design team leading. There's uh, the meetings, you folks of, of Al-Anon, you folks of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, the, the meetings and the literature are all part of that design team to lead me on a life of serenity. And that's the design for me. And I don't know what it's like for you, but when I think about that, I, I cannot be the lead of the design team. I can't be my manager. I've gotten myself into lots of trouble trying to manage my own life. As long as I keep uh, my higher power uh, in the role of the design manager, things go a lot better for me. Um, today's uh, Hope for Today had a, a message in there, and, and if you, I'm not, I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to quote it or anything, but it's uh, February 7th. Hope for today, read that, and it kind of goes along with the design team theme. Um, one, of the, one of the things it talks about is being in competition with your higher power and what that can lead to. If you're in competition with your higher power, you're going to lose your serenity. So, and, and that was a real important thing for me to read this morning. Something that helps Sandy and I, Sandy and I have been married for 42 years. We were married January 21, 1967. And, and um, something that helps us out now is that uh, uh, we do readings together. She's an Alcoholics Anonymous. She's been an Alcoholics Anonymous for just shy within a few weeks of 29 years. And I've been an al the same amount of time. And, and we are learning. We are learning how to have a healthy relationship, which we had not had for uh, 13 years prior to uh, uh, recovery entering our lives. And for a significant period of time into recovery, we still do not have a healthy relationship that we have today. And one of the things that we do is we do our readings together in the morning. Even if we don't have time, we make time because it's really important for us to do that. And, and it's helped us out a lot. It just it kind of puts the brakes on because we're almost like dragsters at the shoot. We've got the wheels spinning and we're waiting for the day. Woof! Let's, you go that way, I'll go this way, and let's go. And, and uh, this kind of stops us and, and keeps us and sl uh, slows us down a little bit. Um, I was born in Ironwood, Michigan, Upper Peninsula, Michigan, and my folks moved to uh, Wisconsin to Superior during the war. Uh, end of the war, my dad got a job in the shipyard, so uh, pretty much I've been raised in Wisconsin or Superior all my life. I grew up in the poor part of town. I grew up uh, on, the, on the wrong side of the tracks, literally speaking, on the wrong side of the tracks, and I uh, grew up with bars and whorehouses all around me. And uh, usually I get into that, but I've already taken up some time on other things. So, uh, <laughs> but it is quite interesting, believe me. Um, but my folks drank. I don't know if uh, my life was affected by their drinking. Were they alcoholic or not? I do not know. But I remember most of the arguments in our home were after one or the other or both had been drinking. Uh, it's no longer my business, nor was it ever, that my folks were or weren't alcoholic. Uh, I've, I've come to Ellen and found a recovery program that helps me out with my own inadequacies coming from living with alcohol and being raised uh, uh, in, um, living with uh, alcohol. I remember as a young kid getting in the middle of those arguments many times, breaking those arguments up because I, I never felt it was my role. It's just what I did. And even with, with my friends, if they got into arguments or fights, I always tried to get in and calm the waters. And maybe that's just my makeup. But in Al-Anon, I've learned to understand that. Um, Sandy, and she sends her love to those of you that know her, and there are several who have asked about her. She's, uh, she's with one of her pigeons, as a matter of fact, this weekend in Eau Claire. She's spending the weekend with one of the ladies that she sponsors. And um, uh, she grew up six blocks away from me, also on the wrong side of the tracks. I did not know her until she was 18 years old. Uh, I, her sister that I just mentioned a little while ago, her sister and I are the same age, and I went to school with Marlene. Um, 
Sandy grew up in a home that, where the plug was in the jug for 40 years. She had never seen her father drink, but there was untreated alcoholism in that home. In my home, love was always mentioned. Love, 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 love. That's all I heard. I was embarrassed to bring guys over to the house when I was a teenager, 14, 15 years old, because my dad would go, oh, I love you. you know, and, and I'd say, I love you too, Dad. God, you know. Oh. And, and even today, my mom's 91 years old, and if you've ever seen Driving Miss Daisy, I'm the chauffeur. And, and she's Miss Daisy. She just gave up her, her car. Uh, she uh, blew the head gasket on her car and decided to quit driving at the age of 91. And so I've been relegated to that role. And um, she'll, she'll call me up and she'll say, I have to go to the, to the drugstore. I said, okay, Ma, I'll be there in a minute. Okay, hon, I love you. Goodbye. And then a couple minutes later, the phone will ring. Uh, did you want me at the back door or the front door? Back door, Ma. Okay, I love you. Goodbye. And it's uh, love, 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 love. So Sandy and I, consequently, when we finally got together, did not know uh, a, a healthy relationship, for one thing, either one of us, and plus our ideas on love and what, what a loving relationship should be were totally different. Her ideas, and she would share this if she were here today, is that uh, there seemed to be uh, heading towards chaos, and then there was this big blow-up, and then the bedroom door would shut after a couple of days. It would shut for a couple of hours, and then everything was okay for a while, and, then it would, and that was her cycle of, of what she thought love was. And in my house, I thought it was, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And then, so when we, which I'll get to in a second, met. Um, in Wisconsin, there's a 21-year-old drinking law, uh, but there, if uh, beers out, or taverns out in the county could serve beer, uh, if they serve 18-year-olds, if they just served beer. So there were beer-only bars. And a lot of kids used to drive out in the county and drink, and a lot of kids died doing that. We would put on 150, 200 miles a night going out in the county and drinking. And uh, this one particular night, uh, my friend Dale, I had just gotten out of the service. I was uh, uh, 22 years old, I guess, and, and uh, my, my friend Dale asked if I wanted to go out and have a couple beers at Clara's. It was a Wednesday night, and I said, yeah, sure. So we went out and uh, proceeded to get a couple of bottles of, of beer and sitting in the booth, and all of a sudden uh, Dale's girlfriend Nancy walked in, and she had this, this, this woman with her that walked in, she was wearing a black sweater and it was filled to its maximum potential. And uh, she had this beehive hairdo. This was 1966. She had this frosted hair that stuck up about three feet up the top of her head. And oh my gosh, she looked like a root beer float coming at me. You know. <laughs> as, she got, as, she, as she got within smelling range, I could smell Aquanet. Oh my goodness. And, 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 and then she sat down next to me, and they introduced her, her uh, Sandy, to me and me to Sandy. And, and I, 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 was, I, was, I spent two and a half years in France, but I came home almost as pure as the driven Colorado snow. And uh, I, 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 I was afraid of girls, women, females type people. And, and I had a lot of dreams and intentions and ideas, but I never had any practical knowledge, so to speak. And uh, so anyway, here she is. And, and I, by the time she went to sit down with us, I had us married in the picket fence and three kids and the whole thing, you know. And, and then I also had, oh, I wish she'd sit somewhere else. I don't want her sitting next to me because I'm an idiot. I'm no good. I'm just blah, 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 you know. And, and she did sit next to me. And my God, her hip was touching my hip and all oh, my loins were getting warm. And um, I couldn't understand why, but it just seemed something was happening there. And, and uh and during the course of the conversation, she, she said to me, Chuck, what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I... <laughs> and I thought, oh, Christ, here we go again. She's never going to want anything to do with me, you stupid idiot. You can't do anything right. And I, that's just the way I felt about myself. And um, then she did something that she doesn't remember doing this. And, and uh, But as we were sitting side by side, her toe touched my ankle. Oh, my God. Right here. <laughs> I got the spot marked. I, this is 1966, and if you got touched on the ankle with a woman's toe, wow. <laughs> that, was, that was better than the real thing, which I didn't know anything about. But, so I took seconds, you know. And, but uh, we, we were like a hand in a glove. We were like two sick people looking for one another. After that night, we have not been apart. 
we, we, we started double dating with Dale and Nancy. We started going out uh, uh, with our, just ourselves, and, and uh, we, were, we weren't going to get serious. It was mentioned last night about how we weren't going to get serious, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's the way Sandy and I were. We were not going to be serious, but within a couple months, we were way beyond serious. And uh, we got married uh, nine months later on January 21st, 1967. And uh, in November of 68, we had our first baby, um, and we've got three kids. And, uh, we've got one who's, who's uh, 43, uh, 41. We've got uh, a daughter who is 40, who was born 12 months after our son. And then we have a, a youngest son who's 36. And uh, when, when Sandy had my first baby, it was just, I just thought, wow, this is so wonderful. You know, we did a lot of partying. We drank a lot. Every place we, every place we went seemed to have uh, alcohol uh, to do with it. Uh, Superior is a town of 25,000 people, and there's 89 bars. So it's like you, you just drink. And, and I, don't, I didn't know of, of hardly anybody who didn't drink in that town. So I think, I, you know, we didn't really think we were doing anything wrong. So we just we just did what we did. We we would go to the movies. We'd take a bottle of wine to the movie, because if you take beer and it's during a gushy part where the woman and the guy are sucking tongues and you go on a beer can, you know, it kind of ruins the moment when you snap the top on a on an old Milwaukee. And uh, so we would take a bottle of wine, or we we were going to go out to eat, so we'd stop at the bar first to have something to eat, and we'd never get to go eat, or we'd go eat and we'd drink a bottle of wine, you know, then. And I drank a lot. And Sandy drank a lot, and, and our life just seemed to be kind of unraveling. And, and as I share my story, I talk about sometimes about Sandy's drinking and the insanity of alcoholics and alcoholism, and I don't want to tell her story or alcoholic stories. What I want to, uh, what I want to leave you folks with is the idea of the insanity of the non-alcoholic, how, uh, how living with alcoholism can affect you. The disease affects you without even having it. That, and, and who's the crazier one, the alcoholic or the non-alcoholic? You know, Sandy has a chronic illness, and another chronic illness besides alcoholism. And when she was diagnosed with that, the bottom fell out of our world. We cried. We held one another. We thought, this is it. And obviously it wasn't it. The, the, she, her disease was brought under control, and she's doing fine today. However, I was affected by her disease that wasn't alcoholism. So if you, the way I look at it, if I'm with somebody and they're affected by an illness, I'm affected by it also. So alcoholism is nothing over it in that respect. And I was affected by her alcoholism, and that's what I'd like to talk about. One of the things that took place was once Sandy turned 21. I mean, we were married. She was 19, and I was 23. And I look at these kids, 19 and 23, today, and my granddaughter just turned 17, she just got married. And she said, what do you think, Grandpa? I said, well, you made a decision. You made some decisions. Uh, you've been making your own decisions for about three or four years of your life now, and, and some have been good decisions, and some have been not so good decisions. Some have been bad decisions. This is a decision. I'll let it rest right there. <laughs> she said, you're not angry with me. And I said, no, Tosh, I'm not angry with you. You made a decision, and it's yours and Grandma and I will be here. But anyway, getting back to our, our thing with uh, um, we, were, we were just youngsters. We did not know a healthy relationship. How could we? And Sandy started going out to the bars once she turned 21, and she had this lady that forced her to drink. <laughs> you know, alcoholics never would drink on their own. There's always somebody that forces them to get started, just like pull the cord to get the motor running, you know. And, and uh, it was this woman that did that, and and one night I was sitting at home with my two babies, and, and uh, uh, Chuck, or Chuck and Chris are only 12 months apart, so they both were in cribs. Um, they probably both were in diapers. And I'm home alone, and Sandy's out partying at this girl's house. I knew where she was. And it's like it got to be like 3 o'clock in the morning, and she wasn't home. And it's February, you know. It's cold and superior. It's probably below zero usually is, and uh, she's not home, and I'm thinking, oh, God, I, I started where I, I just thought, I wish we wouldn't have got married. I wish this would have happened. I wish this wouldn't have happened. Uh, I, I, she makes me so, I, I was getting towards I hate her stage. I wasn't there yet, but I was getting towards that stage, 
And then I thought, I'm going to go get her. Now, you see me today, I'm, I'm not a small guy, and I used to be bigger. I'm probably smaller now than I've, I've been uh, in many, many years. And I had a head full of nasty-looking curly hair, and I had this, like, almost like a beard, kind of long uh, sideburns coming down, and this mustache, which I just regrew last night, by the way, um, <laughs> Which gets into a, a whole another ball game, but um, anyway, that's what I, the way I looked, and I was angry. I was angry, so I'm going to go over to this woman's house, and I'm going to grab Sandy by her brunette hair and pull her down those stairs. I'm going to show her who's boss, and I might kick some butt while I'm there because I knew some of the guys that would probably be at that party, and I, I was I was angry. I drove up to that. I left those kids alone home because they were sleeping in bed, and I drove to that house, and I parked outside, and I'm going to go in there and kick some butt. And I'm going to go there and show her who's boss. I'm going to go up there and get her and pull her down the stairs. And I'm sitting outside, and I'm looking up at those window shades up there. And the window shades were lit up almost like the Mills Brothers song or the shadows behind the shade thing, you know. And, and, and uh, I started up the car, and I went home. So who's nuts? The alcoholic that's sitting in there drinking beer and, and BSing with the crew or this stark, raven, sober maniac that left his two babies in cribs? At home, alone in February in Superior, Wisconsin, where every year houses burn down. We've had, already had several this year that have burned to the ground. Uh, it, it's plain to me that I'm crazier than the alcoholic. I've got my own insanity to deal with. Um, somewhat later in our life, uh, uh, we moved to a different house, and, and Chris and Chuck are probably around three and four, four and five, somewhere around there. And I, I, in the, in the wintertime, it gets dark really fast. By 5 o'clock, it's, it's dark outside. So it's real easy to tell the kids, oh, time to go to bed. It's dark out. You know, they don't know any different. They don't know how to tell time. Get them up in bed. And then you can sit and get about your business. And I used to drink a lot of coffee in the Pyrex coffee pot. And, and I would, the, the, the dog never wanted to get in my way because I kick her right in the butt as she got close to me. You know, and that's the kind of guy I was. So, and I'd get the kids to bed, and then Chris would come to the top of the stairs, my daughter, and she'd come paddling to the top of the stairs with her little footy pajamas. And she'd say, uh, Dad, I need a drink of water. So I'd go upstairs with her, get her a drink of water, and tuck her in bed and give her a little kiss. And, uh, you know, she's, she's 40 years old, 41 years, 40 years old today, and, and I look back at that little tiny four- or five-year-old kid, and, man, is the time gone. Thank God for amends. Thank God for the steps of this fellowship. Thank God for eight and nine. Thank God for the pain that you go through before you attempt to do that. Thank God for the growth that you receive to be able to get the strength to do it. And the paybacks, in my situation, the paybacks have been absolutely phenomenal. <clears throat> Except for one. Uh, <laughs> but it, it's, it's marvelous. And, and uh, anyway... She comes to the top of the stairs again, and she says, Daddy, there's a boogeyman in my, in my bedroom. So we go up to the top of the stairs, and I've got the flashlight, and I look under her crib, and she's got her little head next to mine, and we're looking and looking in her closet, and we go into Chucky's bedroom and shine the flashlight in there. And I said, See, Chris, there's no boogeyman. Everything's fine. You go on back to bed now. And I tucked her back into that bed and give her a little kiss on the forehead again. Night, Dad. Night, hon. And she'd say, When's Mama coming home? And I'd say, Shut up! It's a little four-year-old kid. What's her crime? She wanted to know where her mom was. And I scream in her face. The six-foot-four, 240-pound guy screaming in her face to shut up. My son cowering in the corner of the bathroom. I'm thumping him on the chest like I do. What are you afraid of? What are you crying about? He says, Dad, I'm afraid of you. I'm crying because I'm afraid of you. Who do the kids think is crazy? The alcoholic who brings home great pop who brings home candy bars, who no matter what time of the morning, night she comes home, wakes him up and gives him kisses and says she loves him, or the stark, raven, sober, crazy fool screaming at them to shut up, spitting in their face. I know who my kids thought was crazy. I know who my kids thought was angrier and nuts, nuttier than ever. When Sandy went into treatment, my, my son told me that. My oldest son told me that. Dad, you were a lot more crazier than Ma ever was. And I can't deny it. I couldn't deny it then. But as I said earlier, thank God for these steps. Things were getting crazy around the house, and we did not equate it to alcoholism. She drank, I drank, we drank. Um, there was differences in our drinking. There was differences in our, respons our respective uh, responsibilities and, and how we handled them. 
And one day we were sitting on the couch and I said to Sandy, you know, if you just wouldn't drink so much, if you would just come home at a decent time. And she looked at me, she said, I don't know if I can't just drink so much. I don't know if I can come home just at a certain time. And we both started to cry and we held one another. We did not think of, al of alcoholism. That never entered our minds. It was not even there. It was just that our life was going into the toilet and we didn't know what to do to change it. But alcoholism had nothing to do with it because it wasn't part of our vocabulary. We grew up looking at winos, drunks, and soaks. That was our idea of people that drank alcohol to excess. Winos, drunks, and soaks. And, and I hung around the family bars in the north end of town. And those were the guys that dressed in ratty clothes. They sold cereal to get enough money to buy wine. They were never married. And the women were, were um, um, as my mother would say, whores. So, and those were, those were those kinds of people that, that had problems with, with drinking. So that's, that's the way we uh, looked at it. Um, I, I hated Sandy. I, I had a fantasy that she would die. I had a fantasy of her driving into the Namaji River and that car sinking down to the bottom of that muddy river and, and then them finding her and, and uh, I, I would be free of this situation and I could feel free to find somebody that truly deserved me or that somebody that I deserved. And that was my fantasy. And I had the, the funeral all set out. I had her obituary in my mind. I had the pallbearers set in my mind. And if I saw any of the pallbearers getting too friendly with her at any certain times, they'd scratch them off the pallbearer list. They ain't going to carry her to no grave. And then she'd come home at whatever time it was, and sometimes I'd be waiting for her on the couch, and sometimes I wouldn't. And, and uh, uh, if I saw her coming home in the car or, or, or being driven home, I'd run upstairs and jump in bed. Now, Sandy's this little tiny thing, you know, and I'm this great big slob, and I'd, jump, I'd run upstairs and pretend like I'm sleeping. And then she would come upstairs. Sometimes she wasn't able to make it. One time she came, came to the front door, and she wouldn't come in the house. And I said, get in the house. No. Get in the house. See, I'm the husband. I'm the guy. I'm supposed to be in charge. I didn't say that to her, but <laughs> get in this house. Almost like I was talking to a dog. No. As you get in this house or I'm going to drag you in the house. The hell you well. And she took off and I took off. So we're running around the neighborhood. I'm chasing my wife around the neighborhood and she's fully clothed and I've got my underwear on. <laughs> I wonder who the neighbors think is crazy. Yeah, Chuck was running around his underwear again, chasing his wife. But that was kind of our life, you know, and, and some, she'd come home and I'd help her upstairs and she'd be, when she got home, Usually, I loved her. I had hated her up to the point where she was safe at home, and then I loved her. And that was kind of the way it went within a few parameters. There it was different things, but pretty much that's the way it was. And she'd get into that bathroom and do what alcoholics do. You know, she'd be in there puking her guts out. And I'd go in, and I'd, I'd pull her hair back from her forehead, and I'd, I'd say, let it go, hon, let it go. And I'd be rubbing her back. That's okay, hon, it's okay, just let it go. And she'd be puking in that toilet. And in my mind, I'm going, I stick your head down the toilet and flush it, because I hated her. And then I'd take her in the bedroom, and sometimes I'd undress her. Sometimes she was able to undress herself, and we'd go to bed. And I'd put my hand on her hip and thank God that she was home safe. My prayers were, please let Sandy come home in an hour. Please, God, let me get to sleep in an hour. Please, God, let Sandy love me. Those are three of the main prayers I had. I didn't know any different. And that's what, that was my quest for serenity, I guess. Just give me some peace of mind. Those are demand prayers, and, and today my prayers are a lot different than that. Sometimes when I get her in bed, and this is just me. Uh, it's gotten, I'm not trying to set any precedent here, but um, sometimes when she'd be sleep and I'd take sexual advantage of her, passed out body. And I'd think, well, that, I've got this coming to me. We're a husband and wife. If she's going to pass out, tough beans. I'm getting what I want, and that's the way it is. And I felt like crap afterwards, usually. But at the time, I felt like I was, I was, uh, I deserved what I could take. And I would take it. My wife would not remember any of that the next morning. Uh, or would just kind of think, did we do something last night? And, and I, I, was, I was ashamed for that. See, 
I never thought Sandy desired me sexually when she was sober. And again, this is just me. My quest when we were out drinking was to get her to a point where she she looked at me and went, Hey, big boy, how'd you like that? You know, and wow, this is great. You know, we're going to go home and oh, my God. And that's, so I, I, I liked her to drink up to the point where she was desiring me. And then we needed to get home really fast so that we could consummate our relationship while the desire was still there for me. <laughs> It's hard to maintain. I mean, it's hard for an alcoholic to maintain. Just think of the non-alcoholic trying to get the alcoholic to maintain for purposes of their own intentions. It ain't easy, Jake. And, but that was me. And I, went, I was in Al-Anon for a few years, and a book came out, Al-Anon Faces Alcoholism, the second edition. And in the back of that book, there's a story written by a guy. And the guy said, I sometimes took advantage of my wife's passed out body. My God. Somebody else did that. And they wrote it in the book about it. And, I, and once I started doing these the kinds of things, and I started sharing this from the podium, many, many times guys will walk up to me afterwards and say, I used to do that same thing. We're only as sick as our secrets. If, we, if I kept that hidden inside of me, how would these guys that I sponsor, or even the guys that just come to me for, to, to talk, how would they know that I went through the same thing they went through unless I share it with them? There's, right, well, it's not now, but at 9 o'clock Central Time, there was 10 guys having breakfast at a restaurant, and they're all Al-Anon people, and they're all in my age group, and they're various economic levels. I mean, I worked in a grocery warehouse. I retired after 30 years as a teamster. We've got a bank president that goes there. We've got a Presbyterian minister. We've got truck drivers. Um, this is our group of guys. And the only thing, the, the commonality between us is that we're almost the same age, we're guys, and we're all in Al-Anon. We have alcoholics in our life that affected our life. And this morning I got a call from one of them while I was at breakfast. Tell me, I hope they do a good job and that they missed me. And they, they call, we call. If the guy's not there, we call and talk to him. And it just brings us closer together. That's what Al-Anon's all about for me. And if I kept those secrets within me and didn't share them with those guys... How are they going to share their secrets with others? We're as sick as our secrets. Um, a relative of Sandy's went into treatment. And uh, she went into the psych ward, and she did something in the psych ward which caused her to be placed in the treatment facility. And she was 21 years old. And we used to go visit her, and I just thought, oh, my God, what's she going to do for the rest of her life? She's 21 years old, and she can't drink. Boy, is she going to lead a boring existence. What the hell does a person do? And uh, part of the treatment philosophy back then, I don't know what it's like now, but back then it was that if you had somebody in treatment and you were a family member and wanted to be part of family week, you had to go to Al-Anon. So Sandy started going to Al-Anon uh, with her mother and her dad. And keep in mind that her dad's a 40-year plug-in-the-jug non-treated alcoholic. And so it was, the whole situation was really chaotic. But they would go to the Al-Anon on Tuesday nights in Superior. And one night I got a phone call. It was from my mother-in-law. And she said, um, do you know where Sandy is? This, this heat just came in me. You know, you, you, you get that nervous kind of heat energy, and you can feel it in your ears, and you can feel it in your hair. And, and, and I said, Ma, she was with you. She went to, to Al-Anon with you. Because I was happy she was going to that Al-Anon thing because I figured they'd teach her some stuff, you know. And, and maybe she'd be more of a wife than she was, you know. I don't know. Well, well, there was only women that went to Al-Anon anyway, a bunch of old ladies going there. Maybe they'd teach her something. There's no laughter. I've, <laughs> I've offended every lady in this room. So my mother-in-law's on the phone. I said, Ma, she went to Al-Anon with you. And my mother-in-law said, Chuck, she picked up her one day at a time. And her shoes, and that she walked down the stairs. I think she went to Alcoholics Anonymous. And where this come from, I have no idea. I said maybe that's where she needs to be. And that was right about now. It was either towards the end of February or early March of 1980. And she's been going to Alcoholics ever since. So obviously that's where she was meant to be. Uh, and and uh, she's got a few meetings under her belt. And and well, then I thought. I don't remember when this first came into play, but she started going to AA meetings, and I'm thinking, all right, she's going to A&A. 
this is marvelous. You know, she's going to learn how to cook. She's going to be home at night. She's going to be, yeah, yeah, she'll be home, and, and she'll be taking care of the kids and taking care of the house, and I won't have to worry about where she is anymore. And Yeah, right. My, my best friend that lived across the alley sobered up a year before Sandy did, and he was going to this A&A thing, and they started going to meetings together. Scratch him off the Paul Bearer list. <laughs> Because he, he was my best friend, and he told me stuff that used to go on, so I knew what he was like. He used to brag about his conquests. Um, but she's going to A&A, and, 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 you know, I'm working in this warehouse, and, and I work hard. I mean, a, 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 a housebroken uh, gorilla could do the job I do, but it was hard work. And I got off work at 3 o'clock, and, and I didn't have the car anymore because she had to go to the club. That was the new word in our vocabulary club. She was always at the club. She was going to these meetings, and she had this woman that was. she called her sponsor, and I didn't understand that. I thought sponsors were like NASCAR people that sponsored. And all of a sudden, she's got a sponsor like she's selling something or something. And, 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 and this woman had told her to go to 90 meetings in 90 minutes or something like that, so she was she was constantly at Alcoholics Anonymous with you damn people. And I, I'm here I am at work. Uh, I'll be there at 3 o'clock to pick you up. I said, okay. So I'm standing outside, and it's 3 o'clock. She's not there. And I was working in the freezer all day, so I got snotsicles hanging off my face. On my, I'm, I'm cold. My, my, my legs are burning. I'm tired. And about 10 after, she comes putzing up with, with, our, with our vehicle. And, and uh, um, I get in and say, well, what's for supper? 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 we got to go back to the club. I have to listen to the other side of the tape. Oh, Jesus. These outlaws over in the corner here, you know, they do all this kind of stuff. And then these alcoholics sit in these clubs and listen to these things. Uh, my name's Grace. I've been sober since 36. I've, I've predated Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and then instead of bringing me home, she'd bring me to the club. And you'd walk in that club, and there was the air was, was gray down to about 10 inches above the... Above the floor, and and you, and you could hear the alcoholic music coming from behind that gray cloud. They were going, give me another cigarette. And, th and that was Grace with 42 years. But and then they uh, now last night it was mentioned that uh, Dave got to be make the coffee. You know, God dang you alcoholics anyway. I got to make the coffee. I took off my underwear and I stuck it in the thing and I wringed it out. And there was the AA coffee. Oh, it was so stenchy and terrible. And there I am in that smoke and I had just quit smoking. I'm drinking that swilly coffee, listening to Grace go on about her sobriety off in uh, Kansas someplace and, and, and some kind of Cornhuskers thing or other. And uh, that was our life. And it was meeting, meeting, meeting. Her sponsor was a woman that used to drink in the North End bars with us. And she was a, if you ever heard Katie Lang sing this song, Big Bone Girl from Southern Alberta, that was my wife's first sponsor. And her idea was, the detachment was to rip a guy's arm off and beat him over the head with it, you know. And I knew her husband, both before and after the marriage. Her husband was a guy about my size that talked like me. After he got married to her, he kind of started talking like this. And I, I didn't know what happened to him, but I didn't want that to happen to me. And this is Sandy's spiritual advisor. She starts saying, go to Al-Anon. I don't need to go to Al-Anon. It's a bunch of crap, a bunch of old women sitting up there laying eggs. I know what it's all about. I read Ann Landers. I don't need no Al-Anon. See, she was getting a recovery program. She was working the steps, and she had a sponsor, and she was going to meetings, and she was reading literature. Sandy never read before. She never read anything. Now she reads... She, she is just this prolific reader. She reads constantly. And the big book is one of the things that she likes to read and she likes to study. And that was all brand new to us. I did not understand that form of I didn't even know it was recovery. I just knew she wasn't drinking. That was okay with me, the rest of the crap we didn't need. She wasn't that alcoholic where she needed AA. <laughs> we're sitting outside one day and we're sitting knee to knee. And she looked at me and she said, Chuck, I'm going to be going into treatment in, in uh, about six weeks. And, and we might not be together when, when I get out. Boom. that heat came into me and scared the Jesus out of me. And I just thought, oh, my God, 
I said, you know, we've been together six weeks and you haven't been drinking, and all of a sudden we've lived 13 years in active alcoholism, and all of a sudden we're not going to be together. She said, we do not know one another sober. I had no clue what she meant by that. But, you know, when I, as I said in the past, everything we did with drinking, no, we did not know one another sober. We met in a bar. And all of our relationship developed over the course of years through the use of alcohol. So how did we know one another sober? We certainly didn't make love sober. I just got done telling you that I didn't think she desired me when she had not been drinking. And, man, when she sobered up, I thought, abstinence? <laughs> And then she said something about, you know, uh, it says in the big book there's problems about sex in the big book. And, and all, I got all nervous about that because I didn't want to talk about sex. That's, intimacy and sex are the same thing. They're interchangeable, and I don't want to talk about that stuff. And she said, I, I think that uh, abstinence uh, for sexual problems would be good as well as abstinence of alcohol for alcoholic problems. And I thought, no, <laughs> but we were sober. What are we going to do? Well, when she said we might not be together, I decided to go to Al-Anon. And I did not go to Al-Anon to learn the steps, to work the steps, to learn the traditions, to read the steps, to read the preamble, to do any of that kind of stuff. I didn't go there to get a sponsor. I didn't go there to end up going around the country talking at conventions like this. I went there so my wife wouldn't leave me. I thought if I was going to Al-Anon, she would not leave me. So I told her, I said, I'd like to go to Al-Anon tonight. And she said, good. We'll go, to the, we'll go to the club, and I'll, we'll, I'll take you to your first down on me. And she brought me to 1609 John Avenue in Superior on Tuesday night. We walked up the front steps and walked into the house, and that house is like 100 years old. And um, we walked in, uh, up the steps of that house, and we walked in, and, and she said, I'm going in there. There's just big oak panel doors that slid open to reveal the meeting room. She says, I'm going in there to meeting Alcoholics Anonymous. You go up the steps. The second door down on the left is the Al-Anon room. You can go to Al-Anon, I'll go to AA, and I'll meet you afterwards. And I said, okay. And I went up those steps, and I walked down that hallway, and I got to that door. And from behind that door was coming this noise. They were going, bark, 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 I thought, oh, Jesus. I had no self-esteem, but I had a lot of pride. And, 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 and I was wrestling with that pride. The pride, one pride was I don't want to go in there and belittle myself. The other part of the pride was I don't want to walk downstairs and not go to that meeting and have to face Sandy and say I didn't go. Because then she might say, well, I'm gone. And then we wouldn't be together anymore. I swear this is the gospel truth as I see it in my own reality this day. <laughs> I pushed on that door. And the, bo the bottom went a little bit open and the top stuck. I pushed a little bit harder and I fell right into the middle of that room. <laughs> and these women in there are going, oh, come on in, come on in. It's another man. It's another man. Come on in, come on in. The fear I had was what the hell they do with the other man, you know. <laughs> well, there was another little guy in that room. And, of course, most guys are little compared to me. But, I mean, this, this was, he was a tiny little guy and, and uh, probably as old as I am right now. He was that old then. And I sat down next to him because, to me, he looked like Hercules. And I sat down next to him, and uh, there was women sitting in that room. It was all women. And a lot of them were smoking because we still had smoking meetings then. We don't now, but we did then. And the stuff that they sh the, you women shared... I related to, and the little guy, he's re he shared some stuff, and I thought, my God, he sounds like me. And he said, I'll take the meeting next Tuesday. So the next Tuesday, I went back to that meeting, and he shared some stuff. He shared the meeting. He had the topics, and he kind of went on a little bit, if I remember correctly, about what was going on in his life. Uh, there was There was insane asylums. There was state police. There was you know, uh, um, anger and humiliation and all those kinds of things. And I, I felt like, I thought, well, if he can make it, I can make it. And that little guy left. I never saw him again. But he was working for the census in 1980. And he was counting heads in Superior. And once he got done, he went, he went on somewhere else. But God put that little guy there for me. Because I was the only guy in that group for quite a while. And then another guy came in, and I knew him 
from the treatment center. I knew he, was, he worked at the treatment center. So I asked him to be my first sponsor. And we never did anything. I don't think he knew. And I, and I didn't know. We, we talked together. We shared things. But we didn't work the steps to do anything like that because we were simply so raw that we, we didn't know that's what we should be doing or ought to be doing. And then, and then he left the program. One day we're sitting on the picnic table again, and it was May the 18th, 1980. Do you know what May the 18th, 1980 is? That's the day Mount St. Helens blew up. It's also the day my wife had her last drink. <laughs> it was a long time before I realized Mount St. Helens blew up May the 18th, 1980, but I remember my wife's last drink. And my neighbor came over, lived next door to us, and she was a woman that knew what color underwear you were wearing. Of course, I ran around the neighborhood, so she probably would know that. <laughs> Hadn't thought about that one, but um, she came over and she had two glasses of balloon wine. I don't know if you know what balloon wine is, but it's homemade wine. You mix everything together in a glass gallon jug. You put a, a balloon or a device that looks like a balloon on top of the a gallon jug. You set that on top of the refrigerator, and then it heats, and it, it, uh, it ferments. And when the balloon deflates, then the wine is done. And then it's some ass-kicking stuff. <laughs> So um, Marge came over to, the, uh, to our picnic table with these two glasses of wine, and Sandy had six weeks of sobriety. She came or something like that. She came over and she said, would you like to taste some balloon wine? I just made it. And I'm screaming, and the fire is going inside of me. <laughs> and Sandy looked at her, and I looked at Sandy, and we couldn't say no. And she said yes. So we took that wine, and I drank mine, and she drank hers. And then Marge left. And then Sandy said to me, I want a 12-pack. She always drank Old Milwaukee. That was her drug of choice. She says, go to, go to the East End Tavern and get me a 12-pack. I said, no, I'm not going to get you a 12-pack. You want a 12-pack, go get it yourself. She said, I want to get drunk. And there was a few other expletives in there. But, and, and I said, one thing I learned in Al-Anon, and here I am. I've only been in Al-Anon for these few weeks. I said, one thing I learned in Al-Anon is I'm not responsible for your sobriety or your lack of it. I suggest you call your sponsor. And we both started crying. And we just hugged one another. And by this time, we were in the kitchen. And Sandy called that woman, that great, big, nasty woman. <laughs> and that great, big, nasty woman who had a smile like an angel came and grabbed Sandy, and away they went. And Sandy hasn't had a drink since that day, May the 18th, 1980. I don't take responsibility for it or not drinking. I don't take responsibility for it if she had drank. But that's the miracles of Alcoholics Anonymous and al -Anon. You guys, if you've been in the program for a long time or a little bit of time, you are examples to new people. You may be good examples or bad examples. You may have a grand design for living or you may not have such a dandy design for living. But you are a design to people that don't know any better. And I was so fortunate to get mixed up with a bunch of women who were smart in the program, who loved me and listened to me and didn't condemn me and taught me that I'm not responsible for the sobriety of my alcoholics drinking. I, I cause it, control it, or cure it. It was all there. And I was able to use that. And Sandy went into treatment and, and uh, has been going to Alcoholics Anonymous ever since. My first sponsor went. He just never came back. One day he was at a meeting, the next week he wasn't. And I was only going to one meeting a week. A guy came in from Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, who I, we used to go to coffee together. And, and um, um, I would sit with him at coffee. You know, Alcoholics, the Alcoholics Anonymous, after the meeting, and the Alanons used to meet at a restaurant for coffee. And I don't know if you guys do that here. It isn't done there anymore that I know of. But anyway, I would talk with Frank for you know about stuff. And we had a pretty parallel life as far as living with an alcoholic goes. And... He started coming to Al-Anon, and he had a few years of sobriety. And he started coming to Al-Anon, and one day, uh, we were after the meeting, I said, Frank, would you be my sponsor? And he said, I'll be your sponsor if you'd be mine. Because we were the only two guys. So we co-sponsored one another. And I'm not saying that's the way to go, or it shouldn't be that way. That's the way it was for Frank and I. And we worked the steps. We did our four steps. We did our fifth step. We worked through the steps together. Each would, we were separate, but we were together, if you know what I mean. And I, I was able to get involved in service work while Frank kind of did his AA thing. 
Um, I was fortunate enough to be involved in service work. We got into the uh, area um, of Minnesota North. I live in Wisconsin, go to meetings there, but our meetings are part of Minnesota North. And I became involved in uh, district service work, group service work, district service work. And uh, in 1992 or three, I forget which it was, or 91, uh, I became the delegate for Minnesota North. In our lives, I had assumed we're getting really healthy. I had assumed that we had this good relationship. I had assumed a lot of things. I had assumed the role of design manager in my life. And the, I did not assume we, were, we reached the catastrophic levels that we reached. When we hit bottom, I bounced so hard that I knew I, there was no assuming it. Um, I took matters in my own hands. And Sandy looked at me one day. I got involved emotionally in a situation, and, and, uh, and it's truly today why I believe men sponsor men and women sponsor women. In my situation, it absolutely has to be that way. And I became emotionally involved with a, with a, in a situation, and Sandy came to me, and she said, I'm a precious, you, are, you have a, a necklace around your neck, and there are two precious gems on that necklace, and there's only room for one. You make a choice. You make a choice. And I called Frank. I was, this was before cell phones were involved. So I was on a street corner in Superior, Wisconsin, and I called Frank. And I explained the situation to him, which he already knew pretty much about anyway. And uh, we met at a restaurant, and, and he said, you have to make a choice. And here I am. I'm 40-some I'm, uh, years old, 50 years old, and I did not know how to make a choice for myself. If I make this choice, so-and-so will be hurt. If I make this choice, so-and-so will be hurt. If I make this choice, the kids will be hurt. If I make this choice, the family will not like me anymore. If I make this choice, how I'm embarrassing them. He says, make the choice for yourself and let others make their own choices of how to deal with their, their stuff. You make your choice. And I, and I did make my choice. And obviously it, uh, it was the, ch the choice I made. Sandy and I last month celebrated 42 years of marriage. But I did a fourth and fifth step on that situation. I did a fourth and fifth step of my vulnerabilities, my self-righteousness, my complacency, my resentments. I did a fourth step which brought up my negativity. I focused on the negative of Sandy, and I, I, I minimized her positive qualities and focused on her negative qualities so that my, my management design for living would be the way I wanted it to be. And all of this came to the forefront, that I was destroying something beautiful. I was destroying a lot of stuff that didn't, that didn't deserve to be destroyed. And I did that fourth and fifth step with Frank, and I went on through the rest of the steps in that situation. And I made my choices. And that was, when I got done that, with that, it was 13 years in Al-Anon. We had active alcoholism for 13 years. We had a relationship which was not healthy for 13 years. And since then, that was uh, about 94, I suppose. Since that time, our relationship has been getting healthier and healthier because of the choices I made, because of the miracles that work in Alcoholics Anonymous, to have Sandy make the choices that are healthy for her and allow me to make the choices that are healthy or unhealthy for me. We're free to make our choices. Sandy today is my best friend. When I married her, I married her because she had a great bod and I was all and I was in full lust and, and I was a young guy and, and uh, I thought I'm going to be in charge and, and uh, she seemed kind of uh, ditzy to me. <laughs> She's still ditzy, but um, <laughs> she's not here, so I can talk about her. Uh, but my God, she's my best friend. We are together a lot. We enjoy similar situations. We love riding Amtrak. We love riding the Alaska Railroad. We love going to Alaska. We love coming out here. We love looking at cows. She loves looking at pigs, and I love watching her look at pigs. And we share so much in common. I mean, like, I'm saying, well, I can't wait till I tell Sandy about this, this, the Hotel for Shining. Five minutes later, she calls me up on the phone. Was that a, a coincidence? I think not. We think alike. And I, think, I think we're connected. On a, a, I just love her. She's my best friend. She's my lover. She's my best friend. She's my confidant. She's not my sponsor. I have one of those. But today, you guys have given us healthy relationships, and I'm grateful for that. 
I, I love the design for living because it allows me to have guy friends. I never had men friends before. My men friend, the, the guys that I hung around with before were so competitive about everything from uh, hitting a softball to bowling to uh, playing pool to scratching their crotch to seeing how far they could spit. That, you know, I just couldn't get into that kind of stuff. Now these guys, my friends in Al-Anon, we have that commonality and we are so close and we help each other move and if somebody's sick, we go visit them. If someone has a death in the family, we're there for them. We do all that stuff and I found that in, in Al-Anon. And that's, that's really, uh, it's helped me out quite a bit. I, I feel like I have a healthy lifestyle this day. P, um, my youngest son, uh, he was our love child. He was the child that Sandy and I planned to have. We talked about having him. We, we discussed it. I mean, we, we must have spent all of probably five minutes talking about it. <laughs> she said, do you think we should have it? Yes, let's go for it. We did learn how to make love sober, uh, and I'd never go back. Um, but we, Kurt was born in 1972, and he was moving 300 miles an hour. I mean, he was just, uh, he, he'd never stopped. He was a beautiful, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, tall kid, slender kid. He was absolutely gorgeous. And, and, and uh, when he was about 12 years old, the neighbor dog bit his lip off. I mean, his bottom lip was gone. And he had to have plastic surgery and, and had that put back on and had significant uh, uh, trauma from that. And at 13, our, our neighbor came over one day and he went, uh, Chuck, uh, Chuck, he says, uh, Kurt and Mike slept in the tent last night. They got drunk and Kurt puked in the tent. Oh, geez, I said, I'll talk to the boy about it. Well, that's what I figured. I just wanted to let you know, eh? Okay, take care of it and I'll, we'll see ya. And he left. So I called Kurt, we got to have a talk. So I took Kurt in and I was talking to Kurt. And I told him the ramifications of alcohol, the demons of alcohol, and the dangers of drug use and all that kind of stuff. And he was staring at me in rapt attention. His mouth was wide open, his eyes were wide and glassy, and he was just staring at me. And later he told me he was stoned. <laughs> but I'm in Al-Anon, I can tell that stuff. Uh, I got Sandy back in the room again because this guy's conversation was over with. And I said, Sandy, oh, you, oh man, he'll never touch another drop of alcohol as long as I put the fear of God into him. And she looked at me with those Alcoholics Anonymous eyes, which still had the page numbers of the big book imprinted in them. And she said, he's going to do it again and again and again. And he did. He went hell-bent for leather. He drank, poked, sniffed, rubbed, poked, inhaled, whatever he could get into his body to make him high, he did. And when he was a senior in high school, he didn't want to take gym, so he quit school. And, and uh, when he turned 18, Sandy and I were at the back door. It was February 27th when he turned 18. I was standing at the back door, and I had a pillow, and Sandy had a, a sleeping bag. He came through the door with one of his friends, and I said, Kurt, you're not allowed to live in our house anymore when you drink, drugs or you, or drink alcohol or use drugs. You're welcome in this house if you're sober, but you're not welcome in this house if you're using it. He said, you're kicking me out. I said, no, we cannot control your alcoholism or your drug usage, but we can control who lives in our house. That's our decision. And as long as you're using, we make the decision that you're not welcome at home. And he turned around to walk out, and he said, where am I going to go? And I said, Kurt, I have no idea where you're going to go, but you're not coming in here. And when he walked out, I turned the key in the dead, double deadbolt lock that we had, which we had the keys changed. The front door locks were changed. And just before he walked out, he turned to me and he said, Dad, I love you. And I said, Son, I love you too. This blonde-haired, long blonde-haired, blue-eyed kid with his black leather jacket and his jeans on walked out of our life. The next day we got a call, and it was him, and he, was, he just called to tell us he was okay. But you know, that night, Sandy and I cried when we were standing in that doorway as he disappeared down the alley. We said and we cried, but that night when we went to bed, you know what we did not do? We did not lock the deadbolt lock on our bedroom door. Because we took the sleeping behind our door with a deadbolt lock locked. Because we were afraid what a beautiful, blonde-haired, blue-eyed kid on drugs could do to us. We were afraid of what his friends could do to us if they came in our house. We'd already had stuff stolen from us. I like to carve. I'm a woodcarver. I have thousands of dollars in woodcarving tools. You know where they were? In my bedroom. Not in the basement. Not out in the garage. I had everything worth money to me 
that was close to me in our bedroom. Is that a way to live? Is that a healthy way to live? No. We'd see Kurt walking the streets, and we felt bad for him. We'd see him walking down Tower Avenue, and his coat was torn, and his hair was all matted together. And, and we could walk past him, and he wouldn't even see us. He was just in this total drug-induced fog. And one day we got a phone call, which we expected we would get. One day we got a phone call, and it was Kurt. And he said, Dad, can I come home? I said, if you don't use drugs or alcohol, you can come home. He said, I don't want to use drugs or alcohol anymore. And he said, and I think I'm sick. I need to go to the doctor. So Kurt came home, and he, uh, he went to the doctor, and he has an illness, which is a chronic illness from what drug people do. And, and uh, uh, today he's, he's in remission, but it could still come back and kill him. It's that kind of a disease. But Kurt quit drinking. He quit using drugs. He quit smoking cigarettes. But when he went back to school and he finished high school, uh, he started uh, uh, college at uh, University of Wisconsin Superior, and he graduated summa cum laude with a uh, 3.85 grade average. We started to get mail from California, Claremont College in California. Where are you going? What are you doing, Kurt? He said, I'm going to go get my master's. He went out to Claremont and got his master's. I'm telling this story out in uh, California. I can never remember the name of that thing. What is it, Beth? South Bay Roundup. Yeah, thanks, Bev. I'm glad I've got some people that remember things for me. Um, South Bay Roundup. I'm telling my story. There's like thousands of people sitting in this room. And I told my story right up until that point where he had gotten his master's and was employed at a gallery uh, for uh, artists with disabilities. He was working there. I told that story right up until then, and Kurt was sitting at a table right over here. And when I got done telling my story, everybody stood up and clapped and applauded, and then they come over to hug me, and they went over to Kurt. And you people in Alcoholics Anonymous, and you people in Al-Anon, went over to him and said, Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous, Kurt. Welcome to Al-Anon. Keep coming back. You didn't look at him with, with this, You know, 90 meetings, 90 days, or I'll rip your skin off. <laughs> I'll make a lampshade out of your head. <laughs> Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, s several weeks later, Sandy's on the phone. I come home from uh, my meeting, and she's on the phone, and she's going, uh, page 449, page 83, 84, 85. I figure she's got some pigeon on the phone that she's talking to, you know. And when she, when he went to, she went to hang up the phone, she says, goodbye, Kurt. I love you, too. Kurt was going to Alcoholics Anonymous. You are an example. I'm an example. I strive to be the best example I can be for the program I'm in because you might have a young man sitting in the corner. He saw everything that went on in, in, in treatment, and he was bouncing off the walls and on his head. And the woman said, he's learning more than you think he's learning. He's hearing everything that's going on. You might have a young man bouncing off the walls in your room, but you're an example to him. And that's what's so important for me today, to greet the newcomer and to say, welcome. Welcome to Al-Anon. I love you. Here's my phone number. Keep calling. Call me up. Keep coming back. People ask us why we keep going to our respective programs. Well, I come home from work one day. My dream was that when Sandy sobered up, she'd start cooking supper. I come home from work one day, and, and I walked in the back door, and I'm all I'm working in the freezer, you know, all sweated up, cold and hot at the same time. I walked in, I could smell food. I could smell warm, hot, fresh-cooked food. And Sandy said to me, my love, go sit out on the porch. And when Sandy says my love to me, I melt. I mean, she, she gave me an anniversary card a couple of weeks ago and, and said, my love, I love you big time. Wow. She could come up to me and say, my love, the dog pooped in your shoe. No problem. <laughs> no problem. My love, go sit out in the front porch. I'm going to bring you your supper. She comes out there with two glasses of, of milk with the water streaming down the sides. She comes out there with two plates. They've got mashed potatoes, uh, uh, meatloaf, and corn on the cob on them. She sets one down in front of her, one down in front of me, and God's telling me it's time to quit. When my nose starts running this bad, he says, it's time for you to shut up. But anyway, we sat down to start eating. And so one of us started buttering the corn with a pad of butter. I took, the, I took a, a little pad of butter, and we're drying the bu uh, butter across the corn, turning the, the, rotating the cob. The other one had the, uh, the cob 
the ear of corn and was sliding it while rotating it across the quarter of butter. <laughs> Quite a waste, I feel. But um, as we're doing this, one said to the other one, that's not the way to butter corn. <laughs> and the other one said, well, this is the way you told me to butter corn. And then the other one said, I would not tell you to butter corn that way because that's not the proper way to butter corn. So we got in this open, frank discussion about how to butter corn. And Buffy, our Labrador, was sitting on the other side of this little tiny table that we were sitting at, and, and I was spitting corn kernels out of my mouth, and Buffy was just snapping them up and saying, <laughs> But al came to me. al just works, and you know, you're working the al program. It's going. I mean, you can do it. And, and the al coming automatically into my head, so I had to detach. I knew I had to detach. So I said, the hell with you, and I threw my corn cob down right in the middle of my mashed potatoes, and it landed like a rocket. Foom! And a big yellow thing sticking out of my mashed potatoes. And I detached. I said, to hell with you. And I got up and I walked out. And I walked down to the bay. We live right on Lake Superior, the bay, uh, a bay before Lake Superior. And I walked down to that bay, and it's beautiful, absolutely stunning. And we're, I'm walking down there, and there's a blue heron with his neck cocked. And I'm watching that blue heron, and all of a sudden his head went down, zap, and he come up with a fish. And he took that fish and ate it. And I thought, you lucky bugger, you got your supper. I don't have mine. But then I thought, well, there's no other blue heron standing next to him going, head first, I'll swallow the fish head first. <laughs> so I, I did what you guys do. I laughed, you know, I thought, Chuck, you're a, you're a work of art, you know that? So I, I, went down to the, I went down to the bay, and I was standing by the bay there watching, and I, and, and I thought, I, I'm going to go home. i got to do the 10th step. You know, I did the 10th step, and i got to go home. i got, I got to make amends for this. It's corn on the cob, for God's sake. So I, I, I turned around, and I started walking towards home, and as I did that, a fire truck went by, and an ambulance and a cop car went by on the highway, and I, for an instant I thought, I hope to hell she thinks I jumped in the river and I'm coming to pull me out over corn on the cob. And so, uh, and then I thought, that's why I keep going to Al-Anon. Because like, like the price on a new car or the or price on a box of cornflakes, they always got the little notation, subject to change without notice. And that's the way my serenity is. It's subject to change without notice. And i got to keep going to Al-Anon to keep that in shape. I came home. I told Sandy, I said, I want to make amends for this thing. I, it's corn, for God's sake. She said, yeah, me too. Are you hungry? I said, yeah. She says, it's in the refrigerator. She didn't say, my love, I'll get it for you. <laughs> So I, I took it out of the refrigerator, and I, she says, put it in the microwave, and I did. And when I pulled it out of the refrigerator, here was the corn co cobs <laughs> stuck, in the, stuck in the middle of mashed potatoes, and she had taken saran wrap and wrapped over the top of it. <laughs> so it looked like a glass teepee, you know. But I, I passed on the corn. But I just want to emphasize that, you know, Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous, Al-Anon in my situation at AAM Sandy's, has gotten us through these hills and these valleys. I mean, we've gone into some drop-offs. We've gotten into some, some, some uh, places that we shouldn't have been able to climb out of. We wouldn't have been able to do that on our own. There's been deaths. There's been arguments. There's been, there's been disappointments. There's been betrayals. But there's also been corn on the cob. And Al-Anon helps me level all that kind of stuff out. I have, a, I have a life today that's more level and more serene than, it's, than it would have been in the past, thanks to Alcoholics Anonymous and to El Anon. Uh, your theme is, is, speaks for itself, and, and uh, I hope that I can maintain the design team that I have in my life today because I think it's healthy for me. Thank you very much.